Chapter number 13 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Arthur Pientodosi. Chapter 13. Some new acquaintances are introduced to the intelligent reader, connected with whom various pleasant matters are related appertaining to this history. Where's Oliver? said the Jew, rising with menacing look. Where's the boy? The young thieves eyed their precipitor as if they were alarmed at his violence. They looked uneasily at each other, but they made no reply. What's become of the boy? said the Jew, seizing Eichley by the collar and threatening him with horrid imprecations. Speak out, or I'll throttle you. Mr. Fagin looked so very much in earnest that Charlie Bates, who deemed it prudent in all cases to be on the safe side, and conceived it by no means improbable that it might be his turn to be throttled second, dropped to and on his knees and raised a loud, well-sustained and constantinuous roar, something between a mad bull and a speaking trumpet. "'Will you speak?' thundered the Jew, shaking the dodgers so much that his keeping in the big coat at all seemed perfectly miraculous." What well, the traps have got him, and that's all about it, said the dodger sullenly. Come, let go of me, will you? And swinging himself at one jerk, clean out of the big coat which he left in the Jew's hands, the dodger snatched up the toasting fork and made a pass at the merry old gentleman's waistcoat, which, if it had taken effect, would have let a little more merriment out than could have been easily replaced. The Jew stepped back in his emergency with more agility than he could have anticipated in a man of his apparent decrepitude, and seizing up the pot, paled to hurl it at his assailant's head. And Charlie Bates, at this moment, calling his attention by a perfectly terrifying owl, he suddenly altered its destination and flung it full at that young gentleman. Why, what the blazes it is in the wind now, groaned a neat voice. Who bets that here, me? It's well, it's a beer, not the pot has hit me, or I'd have settled somebody. I might have known as nobody but an infernal rich blundering thundering old Jew could have bought to throw any drink but water, and all that unless he'd done in the river company every quarter. What's all it all in about, Fagin? Damn me if my handkerchief ain't lined with beer. Come in, you sneaking varmint. What are you stepping outside for as if you were shame your own master? Come in! The man who growled out these words was a stoutly built fellow of about five and thirty, in a black velveteen coat, very soiled drab breeches, lace-up half-boots, and a grey cotton stockings which enclosed a bulky pair of legs, with large swelling calves. The kind of legs which in such costume always looks in an unfinished and uncomplete state without a set of fetters to garnish them. He had a brown hat on his head, and a dirty belcher handkerchief round his neck, with the long fraying ends of which he smeared the beer from his face as he spoke. He disclosed, when he had done so, a broad, heavy countenance with a beard of three days' growth, and two scowling eyes, one of which displayed various party-coloured symptoms of having been initially damaged by a blow. "'Come in, dear!' growled this engaging ruffian. White shaggy dog, with its ace scratched and torn in twenty different places, stalked into the room. What didn't you come in before? said the man. You're getting too proud to own me before coming here. You lie down. This command was accompanied with a kick, which sent the animal to the other end of the room. 
He appeared well used to it, however, for he coiled himself up in a corner very quietly, without uttering a sound, and winking his ill-looking eyes twenty times in a minute, appeared to occupy himself in taking a survey of the apartment. What are you up to? Intreating the boys your covetous avaricious insatiable loafants, said the man, seating himself deliberately. I wonder they don't murder you. I would if I was them. If I'd been your apprentice, I'd have done it long ago, and uh, I couldn't have sold you afterwards for your feet, but nothing but keeping up your curiosity, ugliness, and a glass bottle. I suppose I don't blow blast bottle that enough. Hush, hush, Mr. Sykes, said the Jew trembling. Don't speak so loud. None of your misterin', replied the ruffian. You always mean mischief when you come that. You know my name. Out with it. I shan't disgrace it when the time comes. Well, well, then, Biggle Sykes, said the Jew with abject humiliation. Seen out of humour, Bill. Props I am, replied Sykes. I should think you was rather out of sorts, too, unless you mean as a little armour when you throw pewter paws about when you, when you do when you blab. And are you mad? said the Jew, catching a man by the sleeve and pointing towards the boys. Mr. Sykes contented himself with tying an imaginary knot under his left ear, and jerking his head out over on the right shoulder, a piece of jum show which the Jew appeared to understand perfectly. He then, in cant terms with which his whole conversation was besprinkled, but which would be quite unintelligible if they were recorded here, demanded a glass of liquor. And mind you don't poison it, said Mr. Sykes, laying his hat upon the table. This was said in jest, but if the speaker could have seen the evil leer with which the Jew bit his pale lip as he turned round to the cupboard, he might have thought the caution not wholly unnecessary, or the wish, at all events, to improve upon the distiller's ingenuity not very far from the old gentleman's merry heart. After swallowing two or three glasses of spirits, Mr. Sykes condescended to take some notice of the young gentleman, which gracious act led to a conversation which the cause and manner of Oldford's capture were circumstantially detailed, with salt alterations and improvements on the truth, as to the Dodger, appeared most advisable under the circumstances. "'I'm afraid,' said the Jew, "'that he may say something which will get us into trouble.' "'That's very likely,' returned Sykes with a malicious grin. "'You're blown upon, Fagin!' I'm very afraid, you see, added the Jew, if speaking as if he had not noticed the interruption, and regarding the other closely as he did so. I'm afraid that, if the game was up with us, it might be up with a good deal more, and that it would come out rather worse for you than it would for me, my dear. The man started and turned round upon the Jew, but the old gentleman's shoulders were shrugged up to his ears, and his eyes were vacantly staring on the opposite wall. There was a long pause. Every member of the respectable coterie appeared plunged in his own reflections, not excepting the dog, who by a certain malicious licking of his lips seemed to be meditating a attack upon the legs of the first gentleman or lady he might encounter in the streets when he went out. Someone must find what's been done in the office, 
and Mr. Sykes in much lower tone than he had taken since he came in. The Jew nodded assent. If he unpeached and is committed, there's no fear till he comes out again, said Mr. Sykes. But then he must be taken care of. You must get hold of him somehow. Again the Jew nodded. The prudence of this line of action indeed was obvious, but unfortunately there was one very strong objection to its being adopted. This was that the Dodger and Charlie Bates and Faith and Mr. William Sykes happens one and all to entertain a violent and deep-rooted antipathy to going near a police office on any ground or pretext whatever. How long they might have sat and looked at each other in a state of uncertainty, not the most pleasant of its kind, is difficult to guess. It is not necessary to make any guesses on the subject, however, for the sudden entrance of the two young ladies whom Oliver had seen on a former occasion caused the conversation to flow afresh. The very thing, said the Jew. Bet will go, won't you, my dear? Where's? inquired the young lady. And you'll stop to the office, my dear, said the Jew coaxingly. It is due to the young lady to say that she did not positively affirm that she would not, but that she merely expressed an empathetic and earnest desire to be blessed if she would, a polite and delicate evasion of the request which shows the young lady to have been possessed of that natural good breeding which cannot bear to inflict upon a fellow creature, the pain of a direct and pointed refusal. The Jew's countenance fell. He turned from this young lady, who was gaily, not to say gorgeously attired, in a red gown, green boots, and yellow curl papers, another female. Nancy, my dear, said the Jew in a soothing manner, what do you say? That it won't do, it's so it's no use to try it all vain, replied Nancy. What do you mean by that? And Mr. Sykes, looking up in a surly manner, what I say, Bill? replied the lady collectively. What, you're just a person for it, reasoned Mr. Sykes. Nobody about here knows anything of you. And I don't want them to neither, replied Nancy in the same composed manner. It's rather more no than yes with me, Bill. She'll go, Fagin, said Sykes. No, she won't, Fagin, said Nancy. Yes, she will, Fagin, said Sykes. And Mr. Sykes was right. By a din of alternative threats, promises, and bribes, the lady in question was ultimately prevailed upon to undertake the commission. She was not indeed withheld by the same considerations as her agreeable friend, for having recently removed into the neighbourhood of Field Lane for the remote but genteel suburb of Ratcliffe, she was not under the same apprehension of being recognised by any of her numerous acquaintances. Accordingly, with a clean white apron tied over her gown and her curl papers tucked under a straw bonnet, both articles of dress being provided from the Jew's inexhaustible stock, Miss Nancy prepared to issue forth on her errand. Stop a minute, my dear, said the Jew, producing a little covered basket. Carry that in one hand. It looks more respectable, my dear. Give her a door key to carry in her own artist door one, begin. Said Sykes, it looked real and genuine like. Yes, my dear, uh, it does, so it does, said the Jew, hanging a large street door key with the, on the forefinger of the young lady's right hand. They're very good, very good indeed, my dear, said the Jew, rubbing his hands. Oh, my brother, my poor, dear, sweet, innocent little brother, 
exclaimed Nancy, bursting into tears and ringing a little basket in the street door key in an agony of distress. What has become of him? Where have they taken him to? Oh, do have pity, and tell me what he's done with the poor boy, gentlemen. Do, gentlemen, if you please, gentlemen. Having uttered these words in the most lamentable and heartbroken tone, to the immeasurable delight of her hearers, Miss Nancy paused, winking to the company and nodding smiley round, and disappeared. Ah, she's a clever girl, my dears, said the Jew, turning round to his young friends and shaking his head gravely, as if in mute admonition to them to follow the bright example they had just beheld. She's an honour to her sex, said Mr. Sykes, filling his glass and smiting the table with an enormous fist. Here's to health, and wishing they was all I care. Well, these and many other economidiums were being passed on the accomplished Nancy, that young lady made the best of her way to the police office. With her notwithstanding a little natural timidity consequent upon working the streets alone and unprotected, she arrived in perfect safety shortly afterwards. Entering by the back way, she tapped softly with the key on one of the cell doors and listened. There was no sound within, so she coughed and listened again. Still, there was no reply, so she spoke. No, Lee, dear. Uh, my Nancy, in a gentle voice. No, Lee. There was nobody inside but a miserable, shoeless criminal who had been taken up for playing the flute, and who, the offence against society having been clearly proven, and being very properly committed by Mr. Fang to the House of Correction for one month, with the appropriate amusing remark, that since he had so much breath to spare, it would be more wholesomely expended on a treadmill than in a musical instrument. He made no answer, being occupied mentally, wailing the loss of the flute, which had been consecrated for the use of the county. So Mercy passed on to the next cell and knocked there. Well, came a faint and feeble voice. Is there a little boy here? inquired Nancy with a preliminary sob. Oh, oh, no, replied the noise. God forbid! This was a vagrant of sixty-five who was going to prison for not playing the flute, or in other words, for begging in the streets, and doing nothing for his livelihood. In the next cell was another man who was going to the same prison for hawking tin saucepans without license, thereby doing something for his living, in defiance of the stamp office. But as neither of these criminals answered to the name of Oliver, or knew anything about him, Nancy went straight up to the broth officer in the striped waistcoat, and with the most piteous wailings and lamentations, rendered more piteously by a prompt and officious use of the street-door key in the little basket, demanded her own dear brother. "'I haven't got him, ma'am, my dear.' "'Where is he?' screamed Nancy in a distracted manner. "'Why, the gentleman's got him,' cried the officer. What gentleman? Oh, gracious heavens! What gentleman? exclaimed Nancy. In reply to this incoherent questioning, the old man informed the deeply affected sister that Oliver had been taken ill in the office and discharged in consequence of a witness having proved that robbery to have been committed by another boy, not in custody, and that the prosecutor had carried him away, in an insensible condition, to his own residence, of and concerning which all the informant knew was that it was somewhere in Pentonville, he having heard that word mentioned in the directions to the coachman. In a dreadful state of doubt and uncertainty, the agonized young woman staggered to the gate, and then, exchanging a faltering walk for a swift run, returned by the most devious and complicated route she could think of to the domicile of the jewel. 
Mr. Bill Sykes no sooner heard the account of the expedition delivered than he hastily called up the white dog, and putting on his hat, expeditiously departed without devoting any time to the formality of wishing the company good morning. "'We must know where he is, my dears. He must be found,' said the Jew, very greatly excited. "'Charlie, do nothing but scold about. Don't you bring on so news of him. Nancy, my dear, I must have him found. I trust to you, my dear.' To you and the artful for everything. Say, stay, stay, uttered the Jew, unlocking a drawer with a shaky hand. Here's money, my dears. I shall shut up the shop tonight. You'll know where to find me. Don't stop here a minute, not an instant, my dears. With these words, he pushed them from the room and carefully double locking and barring the door behind them, drew from its place of concealment the box which he had unintentionally disclosed to Oliver. There he hastily proceeded to expose the watches and jewellery beneath his clothing. A rap at the door startled him in this occupation. "'Who's there?' he cried in a shrill tone. "'Me!' replied the voice of the dodger through the keyhole. "'What now?' cried the Jew impatiently. "'Is he to be kidnapped with the other king, Marcy says?' inquired the dodger. "'Yes!' cried the Jew. "'Whenever she lays hands on him, find him, find him out, that's all. "'I shall know what to do next, never fear.' The boy murmured a reply of intelligence. He has not peeped so far, said the Jew as he pursued his occupation. If he means to blab at us among his new friends, we may stop at his mouth yet. End of chapter 13 of Oliver Twist